audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Well, good morning, church. I am uh, I'm so excited about this morning. I get to preach a text that I have wanted to preach for a long time. Uh, in Revelation 2 and 3, we read about seven churches, seven congregations, each from a different city, each from a different community, each from a different culture, some being persecuted, others prospering, others more of areas in poverty, right? But Jesus speaks to these seven churches, these seven different churches. And and he speaks to them because he knows them and he cares for these churches and he gives them a report card. Jesus literally takes each of these churches, he evaluates them and says, you know, you're doing this well. And other times he reveals things that they are not doing well uh, to churches like Smyrna and Philadelphia, for example. Uh, He just encourages them. Nothing but positive, encouraging remarks to them in their trials. To other churches like Ephesus and Pergamum, for example, it's a bit of a mixed bag. Jesus will start positive and then uh, switch gears and talk about the things that they need to work on as a church. And then there are other churches like Sardis, for example, that Jesus just jumps straight into rebuke. And what we're able to see as we read these, what we're able to see is that one, our God, he loves his church and he cares for his church. And two, that our God cares about the way we live and we function together as the church. Not just theoretically, but but in reality as Stone Oak Bible Church, our God cares about the way that we live and the way we function together. In other words, yes, he cares about us on an individual level, a personal level, but our God cares about us on a group level, on a corporate level just as much. And so I'm excited to look at this. And and by the way, this is why it's so important for us to be a part of a local church. As we read this, we're going to see, yes, God does. He cares for uh, the global church. Yes, our God does care for us on an individual level. Praise the Lord for that. But what's going to be so clear is that our God, that Jesus cares deeply for the local church. And he has a plan for the local church. And it's so clear as we look at Revelation 2 and 3. So having said said that, what we're going to do is we're going to spend some time together looking at the last church. We see Jesus address this church in Revelation 3, 15 through 22. Uh, And this is just so fascinating. And it's such an applicable portion of scripture. As I said, I've been looking forward to this for a long time, so let's, let's dive in. Um, let's start with the intro of our text, this first verse, verse 14. And then what we'll do is we'll get some more context for us. So verse 14 says, And the angel of the Lord, or angel of the church in Laodicea, write. So uh, pause. 
As we look back at each of these churches in Revelation, we see that each of the addresses to the church begins the same way. It's to the angel of the church. Now, the uh, the Greek word here is angelos, and that's translated as either messenger or angel. And so this here is the idea of messenger, be that an earthly messenger or a heavenly messenger. This idea of a messenger is what we see here. And so the big idea is that Jesus is giving this word to, uh, to John, who is recording it, who wrote Revelation, to the messengers given to the churches. So you can see how Jesus is speaking directly uh, through John the messengers to these churches. Now, um, who are these messengers? Uh, who are these angels of the churches? Well, our text isn't explicit about their identities. Uh, you know, most believe, as you study this, most believe that, that these messengers were the elders of the pastors of these churches. But irregardless, the important thing that we see here is that these are the messengers. So Jesus speaking his message through John and these messengers to these churches. And as we look at this intro, I love how Jesus describes himself. Listen to this. The words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So Jesus here identifies himself first as the amen, meaning the truth, the sure truth. This is why we end our prayers together saying amen. It's saying surely what was just spoken, surely it is true. And so Jesus says, I am true. My words are true and they can be trusted. Second, Jesus identifies himself as the faithful and the true witness. Again, this is just stressing that he is the true and, and trustworthy one, stressing the fact that his report card that he's about to give, the evaluation that he's about to give to this church is true, and it can be trusted. Third, Jesus says he is the beginning of God's creation, this is the idea that we see, for example, in John 1. This says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. This is also the idea of Colossians 1 that talks about Jesus being the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation. This is Jesus. This is our God, and this is is the one who is speaking here. Jesus says, I am he, I am true, and what I am saying can be trusted. Therefore, I can, I can be fully trusted with what I'm about to say. So Jesus, don't rush past this, because Jesus says, let me first tell you who I am before I then tell you who you are. Let me first tell you who I am so that you know that you can trust what I am about to say. This is huge because our understanding of who Jesus is, who Christ is, will determine how we hear and how we interact with his word to us. Once we see Jesus, once we see who he is, then his word becomes sweet, his commands 
are good and his assessment of us is true and trustworthy. When we know him, we trust him. And so Jesus says here, these are one of the words of the amen, because I am the faithful and the true witness, because I am the beginning of God's creation. And then he goes on from here to speak directly to this church in Laodicea. Now, for a moment, let me introduce you to this city, to this church in Laodicea. And you might hear what I'm about to say, be tempted to think that it's not, it's not important to know all these details in order to understand this passage. Um, when actually here in this text, context is actually, it, it, it's really important. Understanding this is going to protect us in a lot of ways from misinterpretations. And, and honestly, as you study, as I studied this, it was kind of a, an aha moment for me. There are really, we'll start with three really important things that we can see in order to understand this text in its context. First, Laodicea was a wealthy and a prosperous city. It was booming. The people of the city were generally more well-off. They were not suffering. They were more affluent. In fact, we have on record uh, in, in 60 AD that the city of Laodicea was absolutely devastated by an awful earthquake, just flattened by it. Now, when something like that happens to a city, uh, most cities would need to seek aid and support in order that they could rebuild after the devastation. I think of Houston and I think of the Texas coast in the wake of Harvey as age just kind of flooded into that city to help rebuild. Most cities need that in order to rebuild, but not Laodicea. When this earthquake struck, we have record that the city of Laodicea recovered from this disaster without the need of any kind of disaster relief without the help of any outside help. That's just unheard of. But this is Laodicea. It was a thriving city who was able to rebuild without help. It's a wealthy and affluent community. The second thing I want us to see here is that Laodicea was a medical center of the ancient world. Especially, it was world-renowned for its work in optometry. There are many records and historical findings that show that this great city would export medicine all throughout the ancient world for the eyes. In this eye ointment or, or solvent would, was a massive export for the city. And it's one of the factors that contributed to the city's wealth and prosperity. And, and it's something that the city was proud of and known for. So this city was affluent. The city was known for its medicine, especially and specifically optometry or eye medicine. And then the third thing is Laodicea, Laodicea was known throughout the world for its textile work especially exporting, exporting this black wool fabric. Again, this, this would be shipped all throughout the known world. This contributed to their wealth. This is also a great source of this city's pride, and, and it's something that made this city great. So this city was affluent. It was known for its work in medicine, in the medical field, through this exported eye medicine, and it was known for its fabric and its clothing, which 
it produced and exported all throughout the known world. Now, again, these facts may sound irrelevant or secondary, but I assure you that they are not. I assure you that each one of these things are going to become very important because what Jesus is going to do is he's going to meet this community right where they live. As we understand this context, the assessment that Jesus gives them is even more powerful. So this was Laodicea. And this was the community in which this church lived. This was the community that this church served. Now, there's one more thing about this great city. And I want to read how Jesus starts his assessment of this church. Verse 15 says, I know your works. and You are neither cold nor hot. Now, what's Jesus talking about there? He continues and he says, Would that you were either cold or hot. Now, I have heard these verses used in a lot of different ways. Uh, I've heard it said, the most common thing that I have heard it said as looking at this scripture is, is that God is looking for you to either be totally and completely on fire for him, hot with passion for him, or he wants you to be cold to him, completely opposed to him. I've heard this text used to say, he either wants you to get all the way in or all the way out. Just don't be there in that middle, in that mushy middle. Be hot on fire for Christ, cold toward Christ, or get out. I know that many of you have heard this before. And, and for those, if you read this text that way, for those who are kind of in that middle ground, verse 16 says, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, for a moment, I'd like to challenge this interpretation. And I want us to, again, consider one more bit of important context. That is this, Laodicea was near two other great cities. One, the city of Hierapolis, and two, the city of Colossea. So Hierapolis was just uh, six miles away. Colossea was, was 10 miles away. And in Hierapolis, they had some natural hot springs, just hot, wonderful, medicinal waters as it is known. It was wonderful. It was useful. Pure hot water is awesome. Can anyone here relate to enjoying a good hot shower or a good hot cup of tea or coffee, right? Not to mention the medicine uses. On the other hand, Colossea had cold, pure, refreshing water uh, springs just cold again it was wonderful it was useful it was pure and cold refreshing water and that is awesome can anyone beat a refreshing drink of pure cold water i know in san antonio right now it's it's like a hundred and ten degrees and it's not even 11 yet and um i know that we can definitely relate <laughs> to that wonderful cold water, fresh water. Both hot and cold are wonderful. 
And this should be seen in contrast then to the water that Laodicea had, the useless water of Laodicea. Do you know what Laodicea had? They had lukewarm temperature water. Lukewarm. This is a huge problem. Problem for cooking, problem for drinking, problem for medical or medicinal uses. You, you can't use lukewarm water for this. And so, as I said, Laodicea was an affluent city, and so what they ended up doing was building a massive infrastructure where they could try to pump fresh, hot, and cold water from their neighbor cities into their city because their water stunk. So why does this matter? Why does Jesus start with this analogy? Well, think about this. Jesus says it again. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you would either be cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Jesus says, look, church, I see you and I see what you are doing. And you are a lot like your water. You aren't hot. You aren't like those wonderful and useful hot springs. You aren't cold. You're not like those useful and refreshing cold springs. No, you are just like your water. Useless and a bit gross. You are like a cup of coffee that has set out on a desk for four hours. Anyone enjoy that? Anyone enjoy just cold-ish coffee of course not. Give it to me on ice or give it to me hot. No. Jesus says, church, you're a lot like that. You're a lot like your water. You are like a cup of coffee sitting out on the desk for several hours. And I reach down to take a swig. And as I do, I spit it out. Your water, it is not good. It is not pleasant. It is not useful. And your works, church, They're not good, they are not pleasant, and they are not useful. Jesus here is not saying, look, I would rather you be hot with passion or cold with dispassion. Just don't be quasi-passionate, right? That's crazy if you think about it. You can't think of anywhere else in Scripture where an idea like that is present. What Jesus is saying here is both hot water and cold water are good and wonderful and useful, but lukewarm water is not. And lukewarm water is the kind of water that Jesus says, I'm going to drink and then spit out. And he is clear here in saying, church, you are like that old coffee taking a drink only to find out that it's room temperature. Give it ice. Give me to it. Give me it ice or make it hot. There's not somewhere coldish in between. And there's something here that I want to continue to push on. It gets even bigger than this, and it's something Jesus is pointing, is putting his finger on here. Follow me. And let's look at what Jesus says. And I think things are going to become even more clear here. Jesus says, you're you're not hot, you're not cold. And here is why. Verse 17, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. 
You, Laodicea, say, and you think that you're wealthy. You say that you're rich. Oh, affluent Laodicea. You say that you need nothing yet. You do not realize the truth. You don't realize. You don't realize that you're wretched, that you're pitiable. You affluent Laodicea, listen to this. You affluent Laodicea are poor. You, Laodicea, the center of optometry and eye medicine, are blind. You, Laodicea, the exporter of clothing to the entire ancient world, you are naked. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? Jesus is picking apart this church's self-sufficiency. The key phrase here that we see is Jesus says, you think you need nothing. In in other words, you think that you are self-sufficient. You think that you have everything that you need by yourself. You have it all under control. Jesus says, you think that you are self-sufficient, but you are not. And this is why what Jesus said about the water is so important. I want you to think about this. Church, do you know what happens to refreshing, cold water as it is left to itself? Does it remain cold? Does it remain that cold and refreshing glass of water? No, no. Without outside help, cold water becomes lukewarm. And do you know, church, what happens to that hot water as it is left to itself? Does it remain hot? Can it remain the same temperature? Of course not. Without outside help, hot water becomes lukewarm water. In other words, church, do not miss this. Self-sufficient water is lukewarm water. Water left to itself to be self-sufficient is lukewarm. And Jesus says, church, you think you are self-sufficient, but you are just like your water. Self-sufficient water is lukewarm water. And Jesus says, a self-sufficient church is a lukewarm church. Jesus says, you're just like your water. And then what does Jesus say to do? What does he command this church to do for the remedy? Listen to this. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Do you hear it? Jesus says, you who think you are self-sufficient, come to me, rely on me, be rich in me, clothe yourself in me, and let me help you so that you can see. Jesus says, don't try, don't attempt to, or, or be content being self-sufficient and self-reliant. Jesus says, be Christ-reliant. This is huge. I got a birthday present that I want to show you. Uh, Some of you may have already been wondering why uh, there's two coffee mugs up here with me today. But one of these, this one, uh, is my birthday present. It's a smart mug. So here's what this thing does. Because everyone knows that lukewarm coffee is gross and no good, this mug will actually keep my coffee or tea at the exact temperature that I want it. 
through an app on my phone. How cool is that? For me, it's a hot 135 degrees. That's just amazing right there, right? But the amazing thing is that this mug will actually hold my coffee at this temperature as long as I want it. Oh, man, I have had this, morning, this mug up here all morning, all morning. So I, around 7.30 or so is when it was actually poured, this coffee. It's been up here for several hours with my coffee in it. And I want to tell you, it's still hot. Yeah, it's, it's good. It's hot. It's fresh. It's delicious. <laughs> now, I also have another mug up here. This here is an ordinary mug uh, that says, my daddy needs coffee, right? Uh, this mug has also been up here all morning. It's also had coffee in it all morning long, and I will not be drinking this one. In fact, I can stick my finger in this one, and, and I can tell you that this is a great, lukewarm, useless cup of coffee right now. <laughs> Listen, as I read this, I, I, I couldn't help. Jesus' words just hit me to the core. Too often, I live my life, I operate my life like this mug. And more than that, even more than that, what hit me is that we as God's people, as a church, as Stone Oak Bible Church, can operate our churches and live our lives together like this mug, self-sufficient. But self-sufficient water is lukewarm water, and a self-sufficient church is a lukewarm church. And this is the church that Jesus says, look, I'm going to pick you up, I'm going to take a swig, and I'm going to spit you out. Christ instead offers this alternative. He says, hey, come to me and I will give myself to you, clothe you, heal you. It's like Christ is offering you a smart mug. See, by yourself, you're lukewarm, but through me, through me, Jesus says, I will make you and I will keep you. Christ says, you're trying to be self-sufficient, come to me. Self-sufficient church, come to me, be reliant on me. You, this is a plea to the people who believe that they are self-sufficient, to that they need something outside of themselves. You need someone to help you. And Jesus says, come to me. Now, I have some incredible stats that I'd like to share with you. We had some research done in our community, demographic research done, um, so that we can better understand our community, better understand how to reach our community. And these reports that we received are extensive. So if you're in a reading mood, you're curious, I'll give you pages and pages um, that, you can, that you can glean from. But I just wanted to share just a few of our learnings from this. Um, this was a demographic report. Again, it was done for North Central San Antonio. So the Stone Oak community specifically. And, and there are a few things that were just incredibly revealing. First was the median household income. So according to this report, in our community, the median household income is an annual salary of $131,000 a year. Now, for some perspective here, the average for the state of Texas is $54,000 a year. 
So in our community, we are over two and a half times higher than the state average. Now, with that in mind, there's, there were a series of questions. And each of these questions were, ans- were answered with a, a, an answer of one to five, one being extremely low and five being extremely high. I'd like to share just a few of these questions. First, first question is, how would you rate your pursuit of wealth? Second is, how would you rate your pursuit of career advancement? And third and lastly is, how would you rate your overall sense of well-being? Now, um, to the first question, how would you rate your pursuit of wealth? Our community, according to this demographic research, was a two. Was a two. Uh, which, honestly, isn't all that surprising. You would expect to see higher numbers in areas, uh, in communities that were less affluent, and you would expect to see lower numbers like ours in communities that are typically tend to be more wealthy. And, it, and it's easy as you think about it because there's less of a pressing need to provide food on the table, less of a pressing need to provide shelter and clothing, right? So it's not all that surprising. But likewise, we have the second question, which is how would you rate your pursuit of career advancement? Now, according to these, this demographic, our, uh, our community was a one. Again, showing that there are many, that many in our community are quite comfortable with our careers, quite comfortable with the way that our careers have advanced. And again, it it, it isn't all that surprising. But let's consider the third question. How would you rate your overall sense of well-being? Well, according to this study, our community is a one. That is well below national averages, well below state averages, and it's well below what I would have expected. This was shocking to me. In a community who has all of their needs met, in a community who has the ability to be self-reliant, in a community who is very self-sufficient and self-reliant, there is a profound lack of a sense of well-being. In other words, for many, it's not our bank accounts that are bankrupt. It's our sense of well-being, purpose, and happiness. And if you hear this and you think, well, that's interesting, but what does this have to do with us? What does this have to do with the church? Listen again what Jesus says in, in verse 17. He says, people, church, hear my voice. It is true. I am the amen, right? And then Jesus says, you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. See, we say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, even though we as a community, we are feeling as a community that we are, just as Jesus said, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. In a way, as, as weird as this may sound, I praise God that our sense of well-being in our community, apart from Jesus, is a one. Because this tells us that what we do, um, that what we feel uh, about ourselves and our self-reliance, the things that we feel, we feel the brokenness. We feel it. And it shows us that what Jesus said is true. We have felt a bankruptcy of self-sufficiency, and now Christ calls us to come to him. Church, let me state the obvious here because I want to go down even deeper. I want to think about this, not on just an individual level, but on a church-wide level because this is very important. 
Church, self-sufficient people come together to form self-sufficient churches. They form the churches who Christ would examine, like Laodicea, and call lukewarm. And our call is to come to him, to hand over our self-sufficiency in exchange for Christ-reliancy. As I studied this this week, you know, I couldn't help but, but think about the Ethiopian church. And for those of you who don't know, we've been involved with the Ethiopian church since we launched Stone Oak, especially in the beginning stages. And we had the privilege of meeting some incredible brothers and sisters there who are, who are um, serving Jesus in some incredible ways. And one of them, uh, one of the men that we met, we actually got the opportunity to bring here to San Antonio even. Uh, he's a church planner, prolific church planner, just incredible. And as we were talking to him, at one point he was describing the prayer ministry there in Bahadar, Ethiopia. It was it just absolutely struck me what he was saying. He was talking about their prayer ministry, that prayer was vital and essential, that people were praying and fasting that people were gathering together for no other purpose, no other purpose other than prayer, that they were coming together daily, weekly, monthly to pray, to come to God, to plead for his help. And get this, they weren't even being begged. They weren't even being begged to be there. They were there. They, nothing could keep them from being there. And I heard this, and I was just absolutely convicted. I know our contexts are different, um, but it's, it's no secret that prayer gatherings in the American church are the least attended gatherings, bar none, that a church will do. I mean, churches of thousands struggle to find tens who will come and, and to a prayer gathering. And so considering this, I just begin to ask him, you know, what is that? What can we learn from you? What causes this passion for prayer in your people, that they would sacrifice their time, that they would sacrifice their safety, their family's time and safety to come together in prayer, to pray with their brothers and sisters. He thought about my question, and his response was incredible, absolutely incredible. All he said was complete dependency. He told us about the way that the churches there in Bahadar are absolutely dependent upon God showing up and that this dependency drives them to their knees. They don't have to convince them or persuade them to pray because they feel and they sense their own dependency on an individual level. And more than that, they don't have to persuade or convince them to pray as the church because they feel and they sense their own dependency. Here's the conviction that settled into my heart. I don't know if I, if I feel that dependency. I don't know if I feel that kind of dependency. Self-sufficiency, self it blinds us to our dependency. And unfortunately, self-sufficiency can absolutely sissify our prayer lives, both privately and collectively. It is through this that I begin to realize more and more that we share a lot in common with Laodicea. And self-sufficiency is at the heart of it all. It's there at the heart of it all. 
I believe that there are, there are three things that we need to see here in this text this morning as we continue through this. The first is right here, church. The first thing that we must see is that Jesus is calling this church to realize, to recognize their self-sufficiency, to realize the ways that they have said, look, we don't need anything. We have all that we need. We are rich. We can see. We are clothed. And Jesus is calling them to realize the truth of their condition, that they are, in fact, in great need, that they are blind, that they are naked, that their self-sufficiency has produced in them a lukewarmness. And Jesus is calling them to realize this truth. And the call for us this morning, church, the call for us is the same. Jesus is calling us to realize, to recognize our self-sufficiency. All of the ways that we have said, look, I don't need anything. I'm rich. I'm clothed. I can see when in fact we are poor, we are naked, and we are blind. And we are in great need of Jesus. We are in great need of the power of God in our lives, the power of his spirit. Do you realize your own self-sufficiency? Do you recognize self-sufficiency in your life? And as I ask this, please know I feel the rebuke of the Lord through his word on my heart. This is not an easy text to preach. I've been waiting to preach this for so long. And then as I studied it, I was, whew, I realized how difficult this one was. I'm confronted with my own sin, a self-sufficiency on a personal level. It's really easy to see. But more than that, church, I am confronted with conviction on how true this is on a church level, a church-wide level. I am confronted by how easy it is for us to today to be completely self-sufficient, to be a completely self-sufficient people. I mean, we might be able to talk as though we are just 100% Christ-reliant, but we, we know the right things to say. But let me ask you this. Do your prayer lives reveal a different story? Christ is calling us this morning to recognize our self-sufficiency, to recognize the truth of our condition. But we can't leave it there. Because Jesus doesn't leave it there. The second thing that we see, that we need to see here, is that Jesus is revealing to this church and to us that he is better. That a life in Christ is better than the most affluent life apart from him. Let's just consider verse 18 for a moment. Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. And if we pause there. You may think you're rich, Laodicea. You may think you're rich, church, but true wealth is in me. Come to me because I am better. Jesus continues, he says, in white garments so that you can clothe yourself so that the shame and your nakedness may not be seen. See, you may produce clothes and you may clothe the entire ancient world, but you yourself are naked. So come to me and I will clothe you perfectly and eternally. Come to me because I am better. Jesus continues and says, And Saul, to anoint your eyes so that you may see. 
See, you may think you see clearly. You may think that you are causing the entire ancient world to see clearly when you are in fact blind. Come to me because I will make the blind to see. Come to me because I am better. There's a song that's called Jesus is Better. It was written a few years ago, and I love the way that this bridge says it. This is kind of a prayer song. We've sung it here before, but it's kind of a prayer song, and I love this. Listen to this. More than any comfort, Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. More than all riches, Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. Our souls declaring Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. I love that. Jesus is better. Make our hearts believe. What a prayer. So first, Jesus is calling us to recognize, to realize our own self-sufficiency. Then he is revealing to us that he is better. But again, he doesn't leave it there. Because then he says in verse 19, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. That's just really good news right there. Because I feel, and I, and I pray that you feel, this conviction of the Lord on our heart through his word. This church was no doubt feeling the sting of the rebuke that Jesus was giving them. And then Jesus reminds them, he reminds us, that the sting of conviction is the very evidence of his great love. Just as it is unloving for an earthly father to neglect discipline for his children, it is unloving for our heavenly father not to discipline his children that he loves. This is so good. Listen to this. To those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. And now listen to what he says. So be zealous and repent. Here's what we see in our text. The first is that we need to realize and recognize our self-sufficiency. The second is that Jesus reveals that he is better. And now third, he calls us to repent. The biblical understanding of repentance is literally to turn from your sin, to you're going one way and you actively turn and go the other. I've heard it explained like this. It's like you're driving down a highway. And let's just pick 1604 because that highway terrifies me for some reason. But you're driving down 1604 the wrong way. Repenting is literally turning your car around, acknowledging you're going this way, you're going the wrong way, and turning your car around. It's a coming to Christ, knowing there's forgiveness, confessing our sins before him, and turning from our sins to him. Christ says, I know you feel the sting of conviction now. Now, come to me. Come back to me. I am better than the world. My ways are better than the world's ways. Christ said, I discipline those that I love, so repent Turn from this self-sufficiency. Turn from this self-reliance. Turn to me because I am better. And I love this because it doesn't just say repent. Do you notice that? It doesn't just say repent. It's not some somber, oh, I will repent. It's not a timid, woe is me, I will repent. No, if you look at this, look what it says. It says, be zealous and repent. Be zealous. It is, it, Christ literally says, repent with zeal. Earnestly, eagerly, passionately, and, and 
Don't just repent. This woe is me. I guess I will repent. No, it is like you're going the wrong way down a highway. I would guarantee that if you're going the wrong way down a highway, that you are not going to, woe is me, slowly turn the car around. No, you are going to, with zeal, yank that car around. And this is what Christ says to do, to come to him with that zeal, with that urgency. Christ describes our coming to him in repentance with zeal. Repent from our sin with zeal. Turn to him with zeal, knowing he's better and knowing that he loves us. Christ is calling us this morning. First, to recognize our sin, our self-sufficiency, our self-reliance, both on a personal level and church, on a church level. It's my prayer that we would see God do incredible things in and through our church, planting churches, spreading the gospel, starting and launching vibrant ministries. But God help us if we ever get to the place where we think that we can accomplish these things apart from him. That there's this build it and they'll come mentality. No, no. Christ builds his church and we are a reliant people on our Savior. Christ this morning is calling us to repent. To repent and inviting us to come to him because he is better. Christ is calling us to come to him, to repent with zeal, confess our sin, turn from our sin, and to run with him as individuals and as a church, a Stone Oak Bible church. Church, would you, for a moment, would you just close your eyes and, and, and bow your heads with me? Listen, too often we can rush and miss an application moment. See, Jesus is clear that he's calling us to repent from this text. And here in a moment, I just want to give you the moment to do just that. To come to our Lord knowing he is, he is good, knowing he loves us, and, and to come to him and to repent. To repent for two things. Number one, to repent for the ways we, on a personal level, have become self-sufficient and self-reliant in the ways that we, on a personal level, are no longer relying on Christ, but relying on our own power to accomplish our own ends. Lord, help us to repent. Would you reveal those things in our hearts? And then the second thing, church, is I want us collectively to come to the Lord And to ask that he would reveal the ways that we as his people, as his church, as the local church, as Stone Oak Bible Church, how how we have begun to rely upon our self-sufficiency and not upon Christ. And I just pray that in these moments that Christ will convict, that his spirit will convict us and that we can repent, turn from our way and repent and run to him with zeal. So church... Let's repent together.